So Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, I'll read down to verse 25, then we'll read chapter 24 of the Westminster Standards. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. <coughs> the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. Now from chapter 24 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. <clears throat> the Westminster Divines... Chapter 24, Right of Marriage and Divorce, Section 1. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Section 2. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind, with legitimate issue, and of the church with an holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. Section 3. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry, who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord, and therefore such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Section 4. Marriage ought to be, excuse me, Section 4. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word. Nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Section 5. Adultery and or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery, after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, and after the divorce to marry another, as if the offending party were dead. 6. 
Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Amen. So we, we are talking uh, this week on the covenant of marriage. Now, marriage, as we see in our text, is a creation ordinance. That means it's something that God instituted for man, for the blessing of man, and he did so at the beginning of the creation, before the fall. So marriage is not something that came about uh, after the fall, but is something given to man prior to fall. So it's like work. It's like the Sabbath. Uh, so God also uh, ordered marriage. Um, marriage is also, in the New Testament, a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And so tonight, we're going to talk about uh, those two things primarily. We're going to look at marriage from this passage in Genesis. But we're also going to look at the, the subject of marriage from the New Testament as well. Now, marriage was debated, and divorce in particular, uh, when Jesus had his uh, confrontation with the Pharisees. Today, marriage is also, and many times, a controversial issue. Marriage, in many ways, has been undermined. Even in the past couple years, we've seen how the Supreme Court has undermined marriage in the Obergefell decision. We have been undermining marriage as a church by permitting unlawful divorces to occur and not disciplining those who leave for unbiblical reasons. The church has paved the way for homosexual marriage because of our permissiveness. We made it easy for those of same-sex couples to say, well, why can't we get married if the church itself isn't observing marriage and allowing for unlawful divorces well, then we were left with uh, little argument uh, when it came to same-sex marriage. It was looked at like hypocrisy if we should take a stand against them. Now, I, I'm not saying our hypocrisy should have kept us from Obergefell, but that was just some of the argumentation that we have to deal with. Because of our sin, we made it, I think, easier for more sin to come in the culture. I want to talk uh, tonight first about the prelude to marriage. And that is that uh, it is not good for the man to be alone. In Genesis chapter 1, we see several occurrences of God pronouncing good over his creation. In Genesis 1.4, 1, 1.10, 12, verse 18, 21, 25, and 31, God says, uh, and he said, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. But yet, we come here, and in verse 18 of the second chapter, we see that God pronounces the situation for Adam is not good. He was the only human being in the universe. It is not good for the man to be alone. Man, Adam, truly was entirely alone in the universe. He alone bore the image of God in the whole of the universe. And Adam, 
uh, as God's image bearer, had no fellowship among his fellow image bearers. He could have, certainly, um, a relationship with the creature he named Dog, but that relationship will always be at the level of the dog. It can never rise to the level of man. God had said that this was not good. Um, one of the reasons it was not good, because God himself had fellowship within his being in the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even before creation in eternity past, had fellowship uh, within uh, his own being, within the Trinity. God had fellowship with the individual persons, the Father with the Son, and the Son with the Father, and the Father and the Son with the Holy Spirit. <coughs> and yet man did not have such fellowship uh, with himself. So this was declared to be not good. It was also not good because Adam could not fulfill the dominion mandate that was given to him by himself. It was impossible for Adam to procreate by himself and to fill the earth and to subdue it. <coughs> he could not multiply <clears throat> and be fruitful without a helpmate. So God promises a helper that corresponded to Adam. Um, he would be, she would be like Adam, but she would be distinct from Adam. Now, Adam begins by naming the animals. This awareness needed to come to Adam. It was already known, of course, boys and girls, to God, but it may not have originally been known to Adam at first. <clears throat> and so God has Adam name the animals. It was first a sign of authority over those creatures, but then also it was so that Adam might see that there was none according to his likeness. So the first reason for marriage, according to the Scripture and also for the Westminster Divines, is not that which the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the first reason for marriage is reproduction. That is a reason, but the Protestant Church has always said that the first reason, theologically, is companionship and for fellowship. <clears throat> reproduction is an important part, but it is not the first part according to most Protestants. And so that's why uh, the confession uh, has here as one of the primary reasons that of need of fellowship. So God does a divine operation and brings about a marriage. He puts Adam to sleep, <clears throat> and God takes a rib out from the man, and he makes from that rib a woman. Now, God can do things like that. Remember, Adam himself, and the text says that all the creatures, if you've noticed verse 19 in your text, were made from the ground. They were made from the dirt, from the dust. So it, it is nothing is impossible for God. Uh, some want to put this all in the category of mythology because God took a rib out of Adam and made forth the woman. But with God, everything is possible within his holy will. Even as God brought forth all the creatures from the dust, it was not inconceivable that God could make from a rib a woman. 
So we see here theologically, though, that Eve has the same essence as Adam, and yet she is distinct from him. In verse 23, Adam names Eve as a symbol of his authority over the woman. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 to 12, <clears throat> we learn that the woman was made for the man. If you have your Bible there, let's look at some New Testament passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. We read this from the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> for a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 2 there. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This is why your pastor believes in head coverings, by the way. That, that, because of the angels. That's not, that is not a uh, culturally tied reason or argument there. Um, that, that is a transcultural argument. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Um, because the woman is a gift from God uh, to the man, we see here that husbands must treasure their wife. They are not to rule over the woman as though she were taken from his foot. Uh, but as Matthew Henry says, she was taken from his side, that he might cherish her and love her and treasure her. I always thought it was a, a nice um, statement that I remember one of my uh, professor's wives, who she's a widow now, but uh, she said of her uh, deceased husband, he always made me feel cherished. That was a wonderful way to describe uh, their relationship. In Ephesians chapter 5, <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, look at verse 25 through 27. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now the subject of husbands loving their wife is of great importance. This subject uh, cannot even be properly understood, really, apart from understanding the gospel. This is why we must be so uh, gospel-centered in our understanding of marriage. A husband's, a husband's first task is to learn of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ for us, the church, that he might then properly love his wife. Christ and his gospel must be the regular study for the rest of the husband's life if he is to execute this command in Ephesians 5 faithfully. Now, this is not for married men only. 
Younger men who are unmarried need to study this because God may call you into marriage. Younger women need to learn what it is to look for in a husband, need to learn this passage. But if even somebody who's a non-Christian, they need to learn this passage and learn this truth about marriage so they can understand God's great love for us as sinners. Those of us who are single or widows, we need to learn from this passage because we need to see and meditate upon what a great husband the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, for us who are part of his bride. We are a member of his church. That means that we are loved by a perfect husband. So loving one's wife is a married man's first ministry in his obedience to Jesus Christ. Peter goes so far as to say that if a man does not love his wife, his prayers will be hindered. He is like a man elsewhere we learn who hates himself. What man hates his own body? Um, We are told if he does not provide for his wife, he is worse than an infidel. For even non-believing idolaters will provide for their wife and their children. The love of a husband is to be a living picture of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Christ's atonement, therefore, is the standard of love for husbands. Think about that for a moment. The death of Jesus Christ is the standard by which we, who are men, are to love our wife by laying down our life for her. Husbands, in verse 25, are commanded and exhorted by Paul to love. Wives are commanded to respect and to submit unto the husband. Husbands, in verse 26, we see love like the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of the husband should lead to sanctification of the wife. Look at verse 26. So that he might sanctify her. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That she might be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. The husband's love should lead to holiness. Love leads to holiness. This is why premarital immorality is not love. It is but lust. Love leads to a washing, a sanctification, a growing in grace. This love is a washing that Paul enjoins upon us, is a washing, though, with the word. Notice here, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, remember, Paul here ultimately is speaking about this mystery between Christ and us. That Christ, our husband, washes us with the water of the word. That is, young people, Jesus uses the Bible and the reading and the preaching of the Bible by the application of the Spirit to make us more like Jesus Christ. He uses that to sanctify us in the likeness of Christ. So also husbands, though, should learn by way of application. We love our wife as one who is to be washed with the water of the word. This is why the husband needs to take the lead whenever possible in the prayers of the family. The husband and the wife coming together in prayer, the husband leading when possible, the family in prayer and in the reading of the word. This is your job as the head of the home 
as Jesus Christ washes us with the water of the word, the husband is to lead his family in the reading of the scriptures and the hearing of the Bible. In verse 28 and 29, Paul says that husbands ought to love their wife as their own body, as Christ loves the church, which is his body. Now let's talk for a moment here about this standard that I mentioned of the love of Christ for the church. That is, Christ's atonement is the standard by which we love our spouse. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, men, you might be astonished, even at times overwhelmed, at how high a standard God has set for you. You should be. (laughs) The bar is set at the perfect height of divine love in human form in Jesus Christ. Think about that. It is the love of Jesus Christ himself for us. It is expressed chiefly in the death of our Savior. No greater love is there than that one man should lay down his life for another. This standard is so high that every man in marriage or preparing for marriage needs to go to the Lord because we need grace. Who is sufficient for this, if I can borrow that language from the Apostle Paul? Who is sufficient for marriage? In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, impressing again upon us the height of God's love. He says, in Jesus Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God has lavished grace upon grace on us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We we are not loved because we are lovely. We are loved because we are chosen by God. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5, God being rich in mercy because of his, here it is, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do you see the point, boys and girls, of reading these scriptures here? That we see that time and again, the apostle, as well as others in the New Testament, uh, are setting the standard by the way of Christ's love for us, or God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And from that love, which we derive by faith, he is saying, I want you now to love your spouse. I want you, husband, to love your wife. Christ has loved you. You love your wife. Christ has died for you. You die for your wife. Christ has given his grace to you. You give grace to your wife. Christ washes you with the water of his word. You wash your wife with the water of the word. Christ is praying for you in heaven. 
You pray for your wife. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is described as a fragrant aroma, uh, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Look at uh, Philippians in uh, chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves. All right, what's my attitude, boys and girls? What should my attitude in the home be like? What, what should my attitude towards my parents be like? This isn't just for husbands and wife now. This is for all of us here. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, Christ is the eternal Son of God, very God of very God, yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of his deity, but what? Of his prerogatives of being declared divine and king. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant. He washed the disciples' feet. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Christ, being the Son of God, did not just come into the world and say, Hey, everybody, come on. I am God. And therefore, this is how it's going to be. No, what did he do? He took the form of a servant. And he came and he served. He denied himself. He washed you know, the feet of even those that were closest to him. Man, I wouldn't want to wash the elders' feet. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm sure they're nice, but you know. But, <laughs> but good night, man. You know. But Jesus did that, you know, at the meeting of, of the apostles. He got down and, and girded himself with a towel and took the basin and he went around man by man by man and did that. He's the son of God and did this. Romans 5 verse 6, For while we, are still, while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ was willing to demonstrate his love for us even while we were unclean, we were dead, we were ungodly, we deserved hell, we deserved judgment, we deserved to be condemned, and yet Christ loved us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love was not conditioned on the fact that we were godly on the fact that we were pious. His love was demonstrated towards us while we were sinners. So the love of a husband is to be this kind of love. It is a self-sacrificing love. He is to die to himself for her sake. Uh, the husband learns that he cannot live as he once formerly lived before he was uh, married. Um, I remember R.C. Sproul mentioning, I think it was in my Christian ethics class, you know, how much effort men put into the courtship. But then once uh, the marriage has been consummated, they move on to other goals because he thinks he has, quote, settled the marriage issue in his life. 
And, and this uh, we need to avoid. Uh, that's just the beginning. The courtship is just the beginning of our self-denying love for the woman. Conjugal love itself is to be self-denying. Uh, many uh, men look to the conjugal relationship with anticipation of what they can receive rather than what they can give. Christ gave himself for us because his love and delight is in us. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 5 says this, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be exhilarated with her love. First Peter chapter 3 verse 7, the Bible says, Honor your wife as the weaker vessel. There's a tendency for men to disrespect weakness here. This needs to be mortified. Pastor Larry Miniger, my mentor, has said that men often get impatient when the woman does not quickly get to the point in conversation. Other, another commentator has said that this weakness, though, is not an imperfection. It is like <clears throat> saying that there's some kind of imperfection in fine china because it is elegant and beautiful and delicate. No, that's the point. China is supposed to be that way. So is the woman. She is also to have these characteristics. And we are not only to uh, respect those characteristics, but uh, enjoy them and, and honor her in them and not run her over because of them. We must also be careful never to ridicule in private or public. The Puritans used to speak of what they called touchy humor. You know what touchy humor is, boys and girls? It's, it's humor that is provocative. You know, if I came over to you, Samuel, and I began touching you and poking you in the chest or in the rib, how would you like that? And I just kept poking you, needling you with my finger, right? What would you do? You'd tell me this. Cut it out, Pastor Boyd, right? You, tell, you would rightly tell me, stop. You're provoking me. Well, touchy humor is the same thing, except it's not physical. You're not using a hand, but you're, you're with your words. You're trying, to, you're trying to needle. You're trying to provoke. You're trying to stir up some kind of reaction uh, and to get some kind of response. That would be negative. Um, so we, we should not involve ourselves in touchy humor. In verse 26, we see that the goal of the husband's love is sanctification, that she would grow in grace. In verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, so that he, Christ, might sanctify her, the church, so that he might sanctify her. The husband is to sanctify, have a sanctifying influence on his wife. Christ died to make us holy. To sanctify means, boys and girls, to be set apart. Christ Jesus died so that you and I could be set apart unto God. We have been set apart by what Jesus has done. We've been forgiven. We've been pardoned. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been justified in the sight of God. We belong to God. We are no longer ourselves. It is not I who live, but Christ who liveth within me. I belong to God. Boyd Miller, the old, has died. I have been raised with Christ. I was crucified with Christ in 1988, and I was raised with Christ in 1988. 
And ever since then it belonged to Christ. So it is with you. Christ died not just to justify us. Jesus Christ died to make us holy. He didn't just die so that we could have an insurance policy at death. He died so that we could grow in grace. Listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 19. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, as he's in the upper room with the disciples, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays that we would grow in grace. And if that's true for us as a church, it's true for us in the family. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Christ Jesus, Paul says, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Notice that Jesus Christ, Paul did not say died just so that your sins could be forgiven. He did what? He gave himself to redeem you or remove you from every lawless deed. He died to sanctify. He died to purify. He died for you to be zealous for good deeds. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, the author says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on that verse this morning. But notice what the Apostle Paul is saying. Sorry. <laughs> what the Apostle is saying. <laughs> the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is to what? Cleanse you. It is not merely to pardon you. Hebrews 1.3, when he, Christ, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How did Jesus Christ purify sins? He purified sins by dying on that cross and being raised from the dead. In John 17, if I can go back to the high priestly prayer, later down in the, uh, further on in the prayer, Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Now, if I ever preach at a dispensational church, maybe I'll use that verse. <laughs> he says, I pray not to take them out of the world. No rapture. But to keep them from the evil one. To what? To be holy. Sanctify, then he says two verses later, sanctify them in the truth. Don't take them out of the world. Don't rapture them out of this world and have cars with no drivers and planes with no pilots and all that. Now, keep them, but sanctify them, Lord. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Make them holy pilots, holy taxi drivers. That's what the dispensationalists need to be preaching. Cleansing comes through the washing of the Spirit of God who uses the Word of God. John Stott believes that the phrase water and word, which we find in, combined in the New Testament, speaks of baptism and the preaching of the Word. That is, it is the gospel visibly shown in baptism, and it is the gospel that is preached. 
John Calvin reminds us, commenting also on this, that the word and the sacrament must go together. We are washed through word and sacrament. Christ is to present himself, excuse me, Christ is to present the church to the Father when the church is glorified. One day Jesus Christ will stand between us and the heavenly Father. And we, the bride of Christ, will stand in the glory that is Christ and that has come about because of the work of Jesus Christ. We will stand not only justified, but holy and blameless before God. So let me make an application or two. Men, if you are to love your wife so that she grows in sanctification, then you must be leading the way in spiritual growth yourself. She should not be outpacing you. You are supposed to be the theological leader of the home. You are the one who is to be studying the scripture above all else in the family. You are to be the most active student. You are the one to whom the wife is supposed to turn. The Bible says that the woman is not supposed to speak in church. So what is she supposed to do? She's supposed to ask her husband at home. What kind of answer will she get if you're not a student of the Scripture? Now, it doesn't mean you have to have the answer right away. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I don't know. It's a good question. <clears throat> but I do know some places where I can go to know <laughs> and use those resources to find out to answer those questions. You are the one <clears throat> who is to be able to get those theological questions answered. Maybe you need to meet with the pastor or an elder for lunch or breakfast. Maybe you need to take up a substantive theological book that can help you. Maybe you ought to just read and study the catechisms. One of the greatest resources is right in front of us in this hymnal. Just reading the back you know, uh, to see that with the answers. I, I told you the story. It's in the prelude, prologue of Ferguson uh, reading the, if you get it on Audible, he reads the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but he writes his own prologue to that. And he speaks of a situation where he had a couple women in his church and they were dealing with questions that were being fired at him from, I don't know, middle schoolers or, you know, elementary school kids. And they were asking these questions. And one woman was boom, boom, boom. She was answering all the questions. And after the class was over, the other woman said, how did you know the answers to all that? And she said, it's in the Shorter Catechism. It was right there. The marriage of Adam and Eve is a prototype for marriages in general but it's also a picture, a typological picture of Jesus Christ and us. In the original marriage, sin had not entered into their lives. The marriage was untainted by the fall and by sin, but there is no such marriage today. 
Therefore, we need God all the more. We need Jesus Christ all the more. And even Adam and Eve prior to the fall. We live in a post-lapsarian world. We live in a world that has fallen. And so we have all the more need to go to our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. 